I want to begin today by talking about a thread that shows up in a few of the crimes we've investigated so far. The thread is this, that when one crime is committed, it often leads to other crimes being committed. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. King David's adultery with Bathsheba led to another crime, David's murder of Uriah the Hittite. But then it was also had ramifications in David's family, with sons and nephews being murdered and a daughter being raped by her stepbrother. Or, consider in our last episode, the death of a single concubine had ramifications that resulted in the deaths of thousands of Israelite soldiers and almost caused an entire Israelite tribe to become extinct. So the thread that we've seen repeated is that a single crime can lead to a string of other crimes. That thread shows up again in our story for today. A single crime of false testimony eventually leads to the tragic murders of more than just a few people. Let's begin with the historical context using King David as the reference point. King David ruled Israel a thousand years before Jesus was born. To be precise, he ruled from 1010 B.C. until 970 B.C. He was 40 years on the throne. Then his son Solomon ruled as king for the next 41 years. Solomon's son Rehoboam was next in line. He started out as the king of all 12 tribes, but shortly after he ascended to the throne, the northern 10 tribes rebelled and seceded. The northern ten tribes became known as Israel, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became known as Judah. Recall that Benjamin was the tribe that nearly became extinct. The split into two kingdoms happened in 931 BC. Now, 60 years later, the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel ascended to the throne. His name was King Ahab and he is at the center of our investigation today. There's no other way to say it. Ahab was a bad dude. In fact, all of the 19 kings that ruled Israel were bad. Actually, the Bible tells us that they were wicked. King Ahab is described this way. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Uh, time out. Let's pause here for a second. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel following the split, and Jeroboam's sin was idolatry. He set up two golden calves in Israel, idols made of metal, one in the north at Dan and the other in the south at Bethel. Jeroboam fostered the worship of other gods not the worship of the Lord. That was the sin of Jeroboam. Okay, back to Ahab. 
he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. King Ahab did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he endorsed and promoted the worship of Baal and Asherah, the fertility god and goddess of the ancient world. His wife Jezebel, who was a pagan foreigner from the coastal city of Sidon in Phoenicia, had a particular hatred for God's people. She led the charge to kill off all of the Lord's prophets in Israel. Ahab may have been a bad dude, but his wife was the wicked witch from the West. King Ahab ruled Israel during the time of the prophet Elijah. As the mouthpiece for the Lord, Elijah warned King Ahab of the coming judgment if he didn't obey the Lord. Ahab didn't listen. So in his third year reigning as king, the Lord sent Elijah to tell Ahab that there, would be, that there wouldn't be any rain for three and a half years. Then, three and a half years later, it was Elijah who challenged Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to a contest on Mount Carmel, located in the northwestern part of Israel. Elijah challenged them to discover who was the true God of Israel. Was it Baal or was it Yahweh? There on Mount Carmel, Elijah set up two altars, one for the prophets of Baal and one for himself. The task was for the prophets of Baal to call out to Baal to send fire down to consume the sacrifice. Long story short, the prophets of Baal were unsuccessful despite their impassioned efforts. Then it was Elijah's turn. He first had his altar doused with twelve large jars of water, and then he called out to the Lord. The Lord sent fire. It burned up not only the sacrifice, but also the wood and the stones and the water in the trench around the altar. The three-and-a-half-year drought ended that day. It was also the day Elijah had the 450 prophets of Baal put to death in an effort to rid the land of the worship of Baal. And it was also the day Elijah had to escape for his life. Wicked Queen Jezebel vowed to have Elijah killed because he had put to death all of the prophets of Baal. So that's a snapshot of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. It gives us a sense of the kind of immoral and corrupt people they were. So what happened next shouldn't be a surprise to us. What Ahab did with his wife's help sealed the Lord's judgment upon him and her. But there's a bit more background that we want to consider before we get to Ahab's and Jezebel's crimes. Ahab's father, King Omri, during his reign, had purchased property from a landowner by the name of Shemer. He actually bought a hill known as Samaria. It cost him two talents of silver. There Omri built a fortified city and palace on that hill. The hill was called Samaria. The city was called Samaria, and eventually the entire region would be called Samaria. 
It was in this city that Omri established Samaria as the capital of Israel, Israel's Washington, D.C., and it would remain the capital until Israel fell to the Assyrians in 732 B.C., 200 years after the United Nation of Israel split into two separate nations. The palace that Omri built, and that was also inhabited by King Ahab, was known as the Ivory Palace because of the ivory carvings that adorned that palace. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 21, we learn that King Ahab also had a palace at Jezreel, located about 20 miles north-northeast of the city of Samaria. It was in the foothills of Mount Gilboa. In the Hebrew language, there are different words translated into English as palace. One word is armon. It means palace, castle, or citadel. It can also refer to a tower. Another Hebrew word is haikal. It can mean palace, temple, or an important military building like a fortress. This is the word that is used in the opening verses of 1 Kings chapter 21. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Then, a few verses later, another Hebrew word is used to describe Ahab's palace in Jezreel. It's a common word, baith. It simply means house or dwelling. And when used to describe the dwelling of royalty, it can have the meaning of palace. Now, if you do any reading about Ahab's palace in Jezreel, you'll find that Bible scholars and archaeologists are all over the map. Some say that the Jezreel palace was the summer palace of Ahab because it was a higher elevation than Samaria and therefore cooler. Others say that it wasn't a palace at all but rather a military installation, a fortress. And then the word haikal can also mean a temple. Now, based upon the various Hebrew words used to describe it, I, I would say all of the above are possible. Jezreel and the valley around it was indeed a key military position. Battles were fought there. And if Jezreel ever fell into enemy hands, the capital city of Samaria was just down the road. There was also a residence of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in Jezreel. And recall that Ahab and Jezebel worshipped Baal and Asherah. Could there have been a temple too? Could have been. But really, we don't know for sure. Jezreel was also an area that had prime agricultural land, especially for growing olives and grapes. Archaeological excavations in just the last 10 years have unearthed an ancient commercial winery cut out of limestone in the foothills east of the city of Jezreel. The age of this unearthed winery aligns with when Ahaz was king. Which brings us to our crime story for today. King Ahab came to Naboth one day with a proposal. Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is so close to my palace. By the way, the Hebrew word translated as palace that Ahab uses is bath, a house or dwelling. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. Naboth responded to King Ahab's proposal the only way he could. 
God's Old Testament law did not permit a landowner to sell land that was part of the inheritance handed down from generation to generation. The land was to remain in the family. The land was not for sale at any price. Well, Ahab went home brooding and angry. He went and laid down on his bed. When dinner time came, Ahab refused to eat. Queen Jezebel noticed that her husband was unhappy, so she asked him what was wrong. Ahab told her about his conversation with Naboth and that he refused to sell his vineyard. Jezebel told her husband that since he was king of Israel, he could have anything he wanted. She said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Now let's examine a little more closely the devious plan of Queen Jezebel. First, she took on the king's identity. Today we'd call that identity theft. She wrote a letter and forged her husband's signature using his personal seal. The letter was sent to the elders and the nobles of the city. The elders were the oldest and most respected men of the city, and the nobles were members of the ruling class. The letter directed the elders and nobles to declare a day of fasting, which they did. Now, this was particularly depraved in that Jezebel was suggesting using a religious ceremony to cover up her murderous plan. At this ceremony, Jezebel directed the city leaders to find two scoundrels, men with no ethics, to accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. According to Old Testament law, two eyewitnesses were required to carry out any death sentence. Jezebel's evil plan against Naboth worked just as she planned it. The witnesses falsely accused Naboth, and he was taken outside the city and stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Did you catch that? Even after Naboth was dead, the biblical text still refers to the vineyard as Naboth's. Because of Ahab's and Jezebel's heinous crimes against Naboth, God condemned them both. The Lord sent the prophet Elijah to speak to Ahab. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Imagine that. Elijah confronted Ahab in the very vineyard that he had stolen from Naboth after having him murdered. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. 
Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. Ahab considered Elijah his enemy and also an enemy of the Lord God, because he had sold himself to evil. The disaster that the Lord promised to come upon Ahab and Jezebel revealed that preserving life and the property rights of others are important to the Lord. According to the book of Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates. Listen carefully. Haughty eyes, in other words, pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness that pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. By my count, Ahab and Jezebel were clearly guilty of five of the six things that the Lord hates. Elijah's pronouncement of judgment on Ahab and Jezebel shook Ahab to the core. He was remorseful. He tore his clothes, a sign of mourning, grief, or loss. He put on sackcloth, a sign of submission and humility. And Ahab also fasted, a way to humble oneself before the Lord. The Lord took notice of this change. And as a result, the Lord's judgment would not come to Ahab's descendants during his lifetime, but would be delayed until after his death. Despite Ahab being a wicked man, the Lord still showed mercy. He would not have to witness the death of his very own sons. For the next three years, the nation of Israel was not at war with their perennial enemy, the nation of Aram. Aram was located to the northeast of Israel, also known as Syria, with Damascus as its capital. Previously, Ahab and his army had defeated the Syrian army led by King Ben-Hadad. In that battle, the Lord had instructed Ahab to end the life of Ben-Hadad so as to bring lasting peace to Israel. But Ahab disobeyed and instead made a treaty with the defeated king. Bad move. One day, the king of the southern tribe of Judah, King Jehoshaphat, how would you like to have that name, Jehoshaphat, well, he was invited to meet with Ahab in Samaria. Ahab had a lavish banquet prepared for Jehoshaphat and his entourage. We learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 18 that there was a marriage alliance between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, who was a God-fearing king, unfortunately helped arrange a marriage between his son, Jehoram, and Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Athaliah was a wicked woman who took after her mother. 
Ahab pointed out to Jehoshaphat that the city of Ramoth-Gilead, on the east side of the Jordan River, had previously been captured by the Syrian army. Ahab wanted it back, and asked Jehoshaphat and the army of Judah to go to war to reclaim it. Having lost Ramoth-Gilead, a city originally given as part of the Promised Land, was kind of an embarrassment that both kings wanted to correct. But before agreeing to the alliance, Jehoshaphat wanted to inquire of the Lord, of Yahweh. Well, Ahab summoned 400 prophets to give advice as to whether to go to war or not. His prophets said, Sure, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. What Ahab's prophets didn't say is significant. When they said, The Lord will give it into the king's hand, the word they used for Lord was not Yahweh. These 400 prophets were not prophets of the Lord God. So that led Jehoshaphat to ask, Is there not a prophet of the Lord, of Yahweh, here who we can inquire of? Well, there was. The prophet Micaiah, who was in prison for telling Ahab past unfavorable messages from the Lord God. Micaiah was summoned and did not have a favorable report for Ahab this time either. In fact, Micaiah said that Ahab would be killed in this battle and his army routed. Despite Micaiah's word from the Lord, Ahaz and Jehoshaphat went to battle for Ramoth-Gilead. Ahaz disguised himself as a common soldier, not wearing his royal robes, so as not to stick out for Aram's army to target him, as the king of Syria told his charioteers to do. He said, don't, don't fight anyone else, just go get King Ahab. Now the charioteers weren't the ones to kill Ahab. Ahab's death is described this way, which demonstrates the hand of the Lord. Someone, some soldier, drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Coincidence? Lucky shot? Not at all. The Lord God had determined that this was the day Ahab's time of grace on this earth would end. So King Ahab told his chariot driver to get him out of there. He was wounded. That day Ahab died and was taken back to Samaria and was buried. Now, because there was a lot of blood in his chariot, some soldiers took it to a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and washed it out. The wild dogs in the area came and licked up the blood, just as the word of the Lord had declared. The Lord was true to his word. Wicked Queen Jezebel lived on for approximately another ten years. Jezebel's son Ahaziah became king and ruled for just two years because he had an injury from a fall and never recovered. And the reason he never required is because he consulted with Baal, not Yahweh. Because Ahaziah had no son, his brother Joram ascended to the throne. Joram was as wicked as his father and brother, no doubt also under the influence of Mama Jezebel. During this time, the prophet Elijah's successor, Elisha, was tasked by the Lord God to anoint a military commander by the name of Jehu to become king of Israel. Well, this prompted a civil war in Israel between Joram and Jehu. Long story short, Jehu killed Joram 
Guess where? At the site of Naboth's vineyard. From there, Jehu headed to Jezebel's palace in Jezreel. When Jezebel heard Jehu was coming, we're told that she adorned herself for the occasion, putting on makeup and styling her hair, and she looked out the window to see Jehu coming. Looking down from her window, Jezebel taunted him. So Jehu ordered her eunuchs, castrated male servants, to throw her out the window. They did, and she ended up getting trampled by the soldiers' horses. Later, when Jehu commanded that she be properly buried as a king's daughter, it was discovered that dogs had eaten most of her body. All that was left was her skull, hands, and feet. From Jezreel, Jehu headed to the city of Samaria, where all of the rest of King Ahab's family were put to death. The Lord God was true to his word. Naboth's death was finally avenged. The lesson to be learned here is summed up in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. When we serve the Lord God and follow his will for our lives, we will experience his amazing grace and blessing. If we don't, however, we risk the same fate as Ahab and Jezebel. The encouragement we take away from this story is, love the Lord your God and serve him only. True Crimes, Bible Edition. In our next episode, we'll investigate two heinous crimes committed during Jesus' lifetime, both by kings. And just to let you know, I will be taking a month-long break from Bible Threads. But I'll be back in a few weeks to finish the last two episodes in our series, True Crimes, Bible Edition. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.